Tonight's second reading is from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach. And Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he could not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. God, we have felt your presence throughout this service and that's because of your commitment, not so much our faithfulness. You have said when we gather around your name, with your word and your song and your table, you'll make yourself known. Each of us really needs to know that. So Lord, reveal yourself in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We are entering into the last section of this study, which we're calling Faithful Ambassadors. What does it mean? What does it look like to live in the culture, to live in the city, and to live in a way that you're representing God? And so for all here tonight that would profess to be Christians, it's a study in knowing how to do that. For those of you that are looking into the Christian faith, it shows you what it involves, what it includes, what it requires as you move forward. And we've looked at a couple lives here. We've looked at Joseph, we've looked at Esther, and now we're going to look at Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel and the prophet Daniel. And each of those folks had a couple things in common. Uh, one, each of them served at the highest level of government and had great influence. Uh, all three of them did. Second of all, none of them planned to do that. 
Uh, they all got there by strange means. Joseph was sold into slavery, Esther was forced into a harem, and Daniel is basically carried off as a prisoner of war, so to speak. None of them had strategized to get there, which is an interesting insight for us, I think, in and of itself, and sometimes how we strategize. But thirdly, each of them learned the art and the skill of representing God in a way where they were bold and had convictions, but they also spoke with wisdom and respect. And so they're a good model for all of us here that are trying to learn to live in that manner. And Daniel, and each of them happened in a time of international conflict. Of course, our day doesn't lack international conflict. Daniel was written on the heels of a power shift between three powers, Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. In 626, Assyria had its last great king, Ashurbanipal. And when he died, there was a power vacuum and an opportunity. Babylon had been under their thumb in vassalship. And so when he died, they thought, this is our chance to get out of there. And they began to war. Meanwhile, Egypt off to the west was hoping they would wear themselves out so it could arise and take power. But when Egypt began to see that Babylon was getting the upper hand, it thought, well, we better get in there and help Assyria. But the king of Judah got in their way from Israel. Even though the king of Judah didn't win, he slowed down Egypt enough where Babylon could get the upper hand, and they emerged as the uncontested imperial power. And one of the first things they do is take a set of captives to Babylon, of which Daniel and his three friends are a part. And so that's everything that sets up where the book is, how Daniel got there. And this is also a time that theologians will refer to as the period of indignation in the life of Israel. That is, Israel, as it was in the book of Esther, is in exile. They're under God's disciplining hand because they had turned away from him and they also had committed grieve injustices in their community. And so, God's people are in a tough place, obviously. They have been carted away, they've been put away, and the book of Daniel begins to tell that story, what it's like to live in that context. The first six chapters basically talk about Daniel and his friends. The other six that we'll look at or get into talk about the visions that Daniel had and how they were representing global things, future things. But for tonight, I want us to look at the question that really lingers behind this whole series and lingers behind this book. How do you live as a citizen in the world, but also as a citizen of God in his kingdom? How do you do that sort of thing? And as we start Daniel tonight, I want to look at the conditions that we face and the commitment it requires. The conditions we face and the commitment it requires. So let's first look at the conditions. We're told that Daniel is brought to a city. Now, ancient cities, one person is referred to, they were like shrine city-states. That is, at the center, to, center of them, there was religion, but also commerce and culture that integrated in the religion. Different than in our day, but I'll get to that in a second. An example of that would have been Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a great temple, Temple of Artemis, 
It was actually one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And you can read in the book of Acts that when the gospel began to go forth and people began to turn from idols, there was actually a, a, like a, a big sort of a to-do and a, a chaos and a rebellion because it was affecting the industry. Because you had people that sold idols and trinkets. So everything was sort of wrapped around. There's not many cities today explicitly where you see that. You know, where religion sits at the center. Maybe Vatican City. You know, maybe Mecca, but not many. But that doesn't mean that there isn't worship going on in cities. It doesn't mean that at the heart of all cities there isn't spiritual significance. Uh, a friend of mine with a co-author wrote a really helpful book called Why Cities Matter. It'd be worth your reading it. And in it, he makes a statement that cities resemble what they revere. And we see this, TV and film. L.A., right? That's the place you would go for that. Mumbai would be another place around the world. Fashion, New York and Paris. Technology, Silicon Valley, Tokyo. Cities have things by which they tend to be known. They have these values. They're these ultimate values. And what typically happens is the values come to surface in cities. And then individuals become shaped by those values because they're pursuing them. And then those values radiate out into the world. That's how cities work. I mean, our own city is an example of that. They actually cite it in the book. They say this of Washington. For the majority of the city's residents, daily life is shaped by power, whether one is running for political office, holding the keys to history in a renowned museum, lobbying for a le legislative shift, or maintaining military strength at the Pentagon. Now, there's more to Washington than that. I would add, you also see it with a gap between the wealthy and the poor, the power and the powerless in our city. But cities at their heart have these ultimate values. And really, when you pursue something, when you see it as a worthy value to pursue, you are worth-shipping it, okay? You're worshiping it. It's a form of religion. I will often say to people that in Washington, politics is religion. It's just a form of devotion and religion. So uh, cities in this way are shaping influence. They're almost like factories where they produce things like business and policies and art and people, and they export them into the world. And Babylon was that way as well. But this is why I bring this to your attention. In the Bible, there are two primary cities mentioned. They were literal physical cities, but more so it's what the cities came to represent what they came to symbolize that I want us to get some insight into. The first city you'd be familiar with was the city of Jerusalem. Now, often known as the city of Zion, the city of David, the holy city. It was a city where David established his capital. It was a city where Solomon built a great temple. It was a city that uh, Nehemiah and Ezra went back to in hopes to restore it. It was a physical city. But it was also a city that was symbolic of the life of Israel, right? It, it was the place, it was the hub of religion in Israel. It was the celebration of cities where you came for feasts and for Passover. The language of the city was the faithful acts of God. The language was faith. The history was about how God worked in the lives of his people, like the Exodus, Moses, and Israel being delivered. 
And the people of the city, the saints of the city, were those that were named by the Lord and those that were devoted to the Lord and were marked out by him. In the book of Revelation, this city is represented as the city that comes down from heaven to earth, the city where the Lamb, Jesus Christ, sits in the middle, and there's no more tears, and there's no more disease, and there's no more evil, and no more pain, and the tree of life is in the middle, and it's the healing leaves for the nations. This is Jerusalem, the city of God. But then there's also a city, the city of Babylon. Now, Babylon had its uh, origin in the book of Genesis, You might remember the Tower of Babel, where men got together and said, we're going to build this tower to the sky and make a name for ourselves. And that tower represented, even back then, uh, human achievement, building your identity apart from God and basing it on independence and accomplishment. And so those were the values of the city. And if you follow Babylon throughout the Bible, even to the book of Revelation, it always represents that in some form. It is the city that would say, I will establish myself apart from you, Yahweh Lord. I will establish myself by my own achievements, by my own desires, by my own laws. That's what it symbolizes. And whenever society seeks to do that, in a sense, it has reinvented Babylon. That's all it is. Now, we'll see this more clearly in the next coming weeks with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It's one of the most fascinating stories recounted of a global figure who is, you know, wrestling with who God is and also just acting like a dictator and a crazy person. But we see early on that he takes goblets from the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem He takes goblets and he intentionally moves them and puts them into his temple. But more so, he takes God's holy people. He takes the young ones with potential and moves them 500 miles east. Now in Babylon, they believed that the prettiest were also the smartest. So you see this little thing, youth without blemish and good appearance. There was some advantage to having acne back then when you were a teenager. You might not get carted off to Babylon. And you notice the strategy, though, is a little different than the Egyptian strategy that made the Hebrews slaves and basically oppressed them and crushed them. That's not the strategy that's used here. The strategy instead is to open up the doors of opportunities and give these young boys a taste of Babylon. Give them a taste of the best of Babylon and open up the doors of opportunity. That's how they begin to approach them. Uh, Nancy Guthrie, who's written a a wonderful little book, and I believe some of the moms were reading it actually this uh, year. Meg gave it to me. She says it this way, uh, that these Daniel and his friends were enrolled tuition-free in the top university to pursue an MBA, a master's in Babylonian art. And they were, immer- they were immersed as well in the myths and the stories. Now, why is that important? Because, you know, it's the same reason why we watch movies like Avengers or movies about heroic conquests like Unbroken, because those things capture your heart and your vision. It's the myths and the stories that captivate your vision. And that's what the young boys were told. They were told the great stories of Babylon. They're being trained in the literature. They're being trained in the language. More so, they're being fed at a five-star restaurant. 
You know, they're being fed in the Resika, the roses luxury of Babylon. And of course, they're teenagers, and what teenage boy doesn't love food, right? That's a real temptation. So this is how life is going for them. She goes on to say, Guthrie, seeking to intoxicate them with the splendors of life in his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's desire was that they become so consumed with the good things the world offers that they would lose their sense of identity as citizens of a holy nation set apart for God, allowing obedience to God's law to become a relic, a cultural thing that had been outgrown. I think that's a good insight. And, uh, you know, our records of history give us evidence of this. You can go back in this time, and in the business records there, you find many Jewish names that indicate that they had settled into the business lifestyle fairly well in Babylon. But I want you to see that the way they were brought in wasn't forced or coerced. They were lured into it. And so we need to begin to think about our city and culture, right? Because I would say it's much more like this than it was an Egypt experience. Now, obviously, early on in American culture uh, and those that were uh, enslaved and brought over here and oppressed, it was an Egypt experience. But for many people today, and I would say in this city, it's much more of a Babylonian temptation where the values of the culture are the things that draw you away. For instance, it might be the lure of private schools and elite institutions where parents begin to whisper the name to their children and begin to apply subtle pressure that they need to measure up because if they get into there, then they'll be able to advance into life. I spent a good bit of time living in Boston, in Cambridge, where the God is education and where parents freak out and stress over kids two-year-old getting them into the right school. Same thing in this area as well. That's one way that might draw in. Another are the myths and the narratives that our culture tells us. It might be the front cover of the Washingtonian of the year. It might be the high school student in the Washington Post that wins athlete of the year. It might be the valedictorian, but it's this vision of something that we aspire to and want and ambition, maybe that's what we're called into. Or maybe it's as one of, uh, someone on staff said recently, uh, lifestyle pornography. You know, as you look at the f magazines or commercials and advertisements, what you find is just this sort of vision of life, of materialism, of youthfulness, of life is just one big happy hour. Maybe it's looking at Washington, D.C. that way. It's so easy now more and more to come into the city and enjoy it as a playground. Don't take me to the areas of the city that will bum me out. I want to just sort of live in the world of the restaurants and the fun. Another way we're drawn into this sort of Babylon view. And lastly, it's the belief in our day that we build our own personal identity. You know... Behind the discussion and debate behind things like transgender, Bruce, gay marriage, there's a much deeper thing going on. And that is the question, who decides one's identity? The narrative of Babylon would say that we decide our identity. We ultimately choose who we are and what we do. It's our definition of love, 
or justice or righteousness or marriage, but we are the deciders of that. And it's interesting, in this day, people are more unashamed about saying that. They're, they're more upfront to say, yes, that's exactly what I think. You may be here tonight and say, no, that's how I think about myself. But it is something, you know, this, this was the, sort of the Babylonian view where identity is sort of named, you put your name upon it. This uh, past week, this denomination, the PCA, had its annual meeting, and I had a chance to go to a um, barbecue. And at that barbecue, uh, there was a man that stood up with his wife. He's a PCA pastor in, outside, outside of Pittsburgh. He said, it'll go Steelers, and I answered him back, but no one was happy about that. Um, you know, in fact, the two guys next to me just booed me and hissed me. Anyway, but, uh, he, you know, earlier this year he was interviewed. His name is Alan Edwards by NPR because he's a man that had had previously in his life same-sex desire and had lived in that lifestyle and uh, henceforth has been married. But here's what I loved about it. It wasn't the two sides that you typically hear. The one is the simplistic, just read your Bible, pray, grit your teeth, and uh, that makes you into a heterosexual. And you just go ahead and you just pray and then you change, right? That's the one, the one simplistic version. But it also wasn't the simplistic narrative of the culture that basically says anybody that doesn't get on with the culture's narrative is basically brainwashed, coerced, or a bigot. It was neither one of those extremes. It was something that was so different, so honest, so powerful, so beautiful, so God, so redemptive. I mean, the NPR article gets at some of it. You ought to go to Harvest USA and read the fuller article. But it reminds us, you know, the answer isn't Babylon. The answer isn't some religious conservative version of Babylon, whatever that would be. The kingdom of Jesus looks totally different. I was so moved to hear it from him. But these days, what I notice in the church about the influence of Babylon is this, and and increasingly so I see it. And that is, for many people, increasingly, their new Bible is the culture's opinion plus personal opinion. So as I hear people wrestling with various issues that are out there, it typically is the Bible of what is being echoed in the culture plus personal opinion. And I want to say to you that Jesus wasn't on board with that sort of thing. Let me give you an example. Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament, right, the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, Jesus, by the time he comes on the scene, that Bible has been around for a while, the Law of Moses, over a thousand years. And Israel had changed quite a bit, right? I mean, it was a theocracy. It was a religious state. So that's where the scripture was founded. You would expect Jesus to say, that is really outdated. You would expect him to say, listen, the thing's a thousand years old. Those things aren't relevant anymore. Plus, it was born out of a religious state. It's a corrupted text. You would expect him maybe to say that. And if you know Jesus, he didn't hold back his opinion. Except on the Sermon on the Mount, he says the exact opposite. He says that not the smallest letter or accent of that will be removed from Scripture. I didn't come to abolish it. I actually came to take it deeper and to fulfill it. This was his approach to his Scripture. And it really is to be the approach of his followers that name his name. 
But I want to get to the deep reason why. Why did he do that? Why did he uphold that scripture? One, because he believed it was true and reliable. But two, he knew that was the ticket out of Babylon. That was the way that you would get rescued from the idols in the slavery of Babylon. And you hear it represented in the New Testament. Just listen to this. For Jesus, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom, or rather God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then the book of Romans. When you were slaves to sin, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of that led to death? You know, my friends, every day I am tempted to go back to Babylon. Every day I am. I've been there. I, I have lived a good part of my life there. And I'd be lying to you said I don't walk down the street still. But in my sane, clear moments, I am so glad I don't live there anymore. Because I was a slave to my desires. I couldn't say no to no. Babylon is a place where you aren't free, you are ruled over. There's not a new narrative, there's not a new story. It's just basically whatever story is circulating, there's nothing supernatural, nothing that would make you go, holiness and beauty coexist together. This is what you see in the life of Jesus. But these are the conditions that we're in today. And if you're someone here that's not a Christian, I'm sure I said some things that offended you, and that's fine. I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you are here as a Christian, and I would ask you, where is Babylon affecting you right now? And that moves us on to the last part I want to hit briefly, the commitment, both ours and God's. Now, our commitment. Daniel tactfully and respectfully, respectfully asked to not eat the king's food. Why was that? Was it because he was a vegetarian? No, later he went on to eat meat. We don't think it's that. Was it because that meat had been offered to pagan gods? Well, later he eats it, so we don't think it's that. Is it because he didn't want to associate with the king? Well, he ends up being the king's right-hand guy. Don't think it's that. Why was it that he didn't want to eat that stuff? And actually, the clue is what we had as the New Testament reading where Jesus said, it's not what comes into you, foods that make you unclean, and what comes out of you. Now, let me give you an example, or maybe an illustration you can relate to. You know, you're on vacation, and you're doing what you do on vacation, which is eat, drink, and have a good time, right? You're not worrying about, you know, the calories. You're not worrying about the money. Maybe, you know, you're just enjoying it. But you get into about the fourth day, you're with your family, your friends, and someone says, hey, how about dessert? And you just go, nah. I'm like, nah, nah. Now, why? You, you could have dessert a day ago. And you can have it tomorrow, but why don't you? There's just something in your mind that's like, I, I've had enough. i got to draw a line, right? I've had, I, I just got to say that's enough. It's not that the stuff makes you unclean, but somehow in a small way you feel like, if I'm going to eat this piece of cake, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm being a glutton. Or I'm just being controlled by my appetite. It's a deeper reason why you say no to the dessert. Now, I'm speaking just theoretically here. I've never had that experience myself. <laughs> you know, uh... I long for to, to know how you do that. Maybe you can talk to me after the service about how you do it. 
For some reason we don't know, Daniel felt like he needed to draw a line at the food. He's taking in the literature. He's living the lifestyle. He's everywhere. It's all around him. And there probably were things he appreciated about him because it's not all bad or all good. But at some point he just said, I got to draw a line there because I need to remind myself Babylon is not my home. And this is not my faith, and these are not my values. I have to draw a line. You and I will have to do the same thing. The book of Titus says that the grace of God teaches us to say a lot of yeses. It teaches us to say no to. Where are you saying no to Washington, D.C.? Where are you saying no to those idols and those struggles? And it really gets to a bigger picture of how the church behaves. You know, there's a book, a famous book, some of you probably uh, read it, called Christ and Culture. It was written by Richard Niebuhr. And basically, in that book, he said that the church and Christians kind of relate to the culture in five different ways. One is just opposition, separate from culture. Another one is just agreement and acceptance. I would say we got a lot of that going on today. Another one is transcending the culture, meaning I float above the culture, you know, it doesn't really affect me at all. Another one is to live in tension with the culture. In the world, not of it, you're battling back and forth. The other one is this idea that we go positively into the culture and try to transform it and renew it. Now, all of those have truth to them. You know, the problem is when you just land on one, but actually one is more appropriate at different times that you're in. I would say, you know, 20 years ago, The Christian church was in a place where it was saying we're irrelevant. You know, we want to sort of influence the culture. We want to move in and transform it. But there's been a shift. Christianity has gone to a place where it was once positive, which was second, sort of irrelevant. But now, growing, increasingly so, Christianity is seen as dangerous. It's seen as a threat. And I'm not trying to cause hysteria and all, yeah, run out of here and, you know, brandish. I'm just saying that's the truth. Christianity, more and more so, is seen as dangerous by people. And so there has to be different ways that the church relates to the culture. I think we're probably in a place where the tension thing is going to be higher, and even the opposition thing, without losing the desire to go in. Because Daniel doesn't separate it. Well, he couldn't. He could have hidden his room, I guess. But you don't find that with Joseph or Esther or Daniel. They enter into the mix. They enter into the culture, they deal with the gray, the struggle, but they take stands at appropriate times. And you know something? I don't know where that is for you, and you don't know where it is for me. There are certain things that are very clear in the Bible, but I don't know when you shouldn't have that fourth piece of cake. You don't know what it is for me. It'll happen, but you'll know it. Something in your conscience will go, i got to stand up, i got to say something. I have to say no here. I pray that you'll have the strength to do it as I'll ask you to pray for me. But lastly, it's not just our commitment, it's God's commitment. Two things here. First of all, God equips us for that moment. We're told that God gave Daniel and his friends learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Daniel, in addition, would give him the ability to understand visions and dreams. God supplies his people faithfully for everything they need to live in the culture of Babylon. Everything they need. In fact, the Apostle Peter, who was living at the time of Rome, so that's where actually the faith later got into outright persecution, where people were getting killed. They saw their founder murdered. And this is what he says. 
God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape corruption. If you want to memorize something, memorize that. That is a robust statement of what God does to equip us to be able to live where we need to live. That means he helps you live it where you're at the office or you're living on the streets. He helps you live it in the moment where you're, you're, you're with people that are very opposed to you and your best friends that sometimes can even be more vulnerable. He helps you live it whether you're in a place of riches or poverty. God will supply everything we need. But why does he do it? Why does he give Daniel and his friends that ability? Is it so they can just advance in their career? So they can get, get the ambition they've been striving for all their life? No. It's so they can be an agent of change where they are. And so I want to suggest to you that, you know, if you get into that position of influence, and here's the secret, all of us have them. The way Jesus influenced the world was through a bunch of unschooled fishermen. Let's not confuse worldly influence with kingdom influence, but the point is, every one of us here has influence. Are you stewarding it to be a faithful ambassador? That's the question we have. But lastly, he not only equips, he blesses. Even though they refuse to eat, their appearance is strong and they're wise. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, I can't find anybody else like this. You not only have the equipping, but you have the blessing that God gives his people. Why? Because he wants them to be faithful ambassadors. That's why God blesses his people. He wants them to be in that place. You might be saying to yourself, you know, I'm really afraid, to be honest with you, if I have to give up this ambition or give up this relationship I'm in or give up this certain thing I enjoy doing, if I give it up, you know, I feel like my life is going to be cursed. And God won't let that happen. He's committed to blessing his people. So we enter with Daniel and many of the saints throughout the ages. This is our time. This is our time. What does it look like to live as a faithful ambassador? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. Help us, we pray. Help us in our weakness to believe and follow after you. In Christ.